You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast and our fourth mini-episode compilation. Yay! We've done a number of these before, but if this is your first one, here's the deal. One of the benefits that our Patreon supporters can get at the highest subscription levels is the ability to request a mini-episode just for them. Yeah. They tell us their favorite group of animals, and then we record a little off-the-cuff our thoughts and musings on that particular requested topic just for that patron to enjoy. And then uh, we like to put them together into these compilations once we've had a few of them and put them out for everybody to experience. These end up being a bunch of just little mini episodes. Yes, just little tidbits. And it's it's a little of an anthology of just, here's a couple of cool, you know, a few cool groups of organisms and we'll just nerd out about them for a little bit. Yes, and we love to do it as a benefit and thank you for the patrons who support us on Patreon. Immensely so. It, it's so nice to be able to directly send something back and, and say thank you. So in this mini-episode compilation, you will hear us discuss Icarosaurus, which is a flying reptile from New Jersey, yeah. for Elizabeth. We will discuss Corvids for Stephen. Thylacines for Tracy, Shrikes for Oscar, Entelodonts for Lucy, and Iguanas for Tobias. Yes. All super cool topics. We had a ton of fun recording all of those discussions. A huge thank you once again to all of these patrons and to all of our patrons who support us on Patreon and allow us to keep doing the things that we like to do with the podcast and keep bringing our science communication efforts to you, the listeners. Yes, we appreciate it so very much. And without any further ado from us, enjoy the mini-episodes. Have fun! Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, Elizabeth, and welcome to your very own patron mini-episode, requested by you and recorded by us, you are a top-level patron, which means that you got to request us to record a little mini-episode about our thoughts on a particular creature of your choosing, and you chose Icarosaurus. Nice choice. Very cool choice. Let's do some refreshers. Uh, here I am on Wikipedia again. So Icarosaurus is one of those gliders, mm -hmm. uh, and we talked about a bunch of these in the gliders episode. Icarosaurus specifically, late Triassic, from the Lakatong Formation of New Jersey, uh, and I yeah. believe, I believe Icarosaurus is only known uh, definitively from one specimen. Yeah, I th that sounds right. That this is, which I think is true of a, a number of the gliding animals of the past, like that Cretaceous lizard, uh, Xianglong, I think is only known from one specimen. So Icarosaurus was one of the ones with just the long ribs. Yeah. They had extra long ribs that supported a membrane between them to glide around the bizarre sky of the Triassic period. Yeah. Icarosaurus, first off, great name. Great name. I, I wanted to mention that oh, as well. Great name. The Icarus lizard? Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool name. That's, that's a lot of fun. Who named it? I'm going to look at it. Oh, yeah. Good idea. But also, it's it, Icarosaurus is 
you know, it looks distinct. You know, it, it looks different than gliding lizards that we have today, sure, gliding sure. reptiles that and we indeed, have today. And indeed, not a lizard. It is not a lizard. Triassic reptile. And even though we have, you know, rib gliding lizards or lizard today. Yeah, we have Draco lizards. But these do look different. They're much longer, more exaggerated. But it is, and we mentioned this in the episode, super bizarre still how similar yeah. this version of gliding is to the Draco lizard today. Well, and it it's one of those strange situations. Uh, by the way, Edwin Colbert, uh, famous uh, earlier, earlier paleontologist. Way to go, Edwin. Good job, Edwin. Good, good name. Icarosaurus. Siefkerai, in honor of Alfred Siefker, who I think it seems like uh, found it. Oh. Who was a teenager at the time. Good job, Alfred. Says Wikipedia. Way to go, everybody. Icarus. So today we have Draco lizards and Draco lizards have elongated ribs that support a gliding membrane. And this is a feature that is unique to Draco. They are the only animals today that glide this way. Yes. So how fortuitous it is that we have one group of reptiles that does this today so that when paleontologists found these fossils, they had any idea oh, yeah. <laughs> what to make. Because you see these fossils of Icarosaurus and Coelurosauravus and Quineosaurus, these different weird Triassic gliders, and they look like a lizard skeleton, except that they've got this folded umbrella's worth of spokes mm -hmm. sticking their, their ribs are just super long how utterly bizarre to see a fossil like that and maybe alfred thought this when he first saw it uh as a teenager discovering this fossil its ribs have exploded what in the world is going on with this lizard yeah absolutely it again is, not a lizard yes <laughs> this this <laughs> lizard shaped thing yeah it, it is super bizarre like the feature itself is bizarre you're gliding with your ribs is weird. That's a weird thing to do. That's that's a apparently weird thing. a common thing to evolve how to do. Yep. Because it has evolved many times. Yep. <laughs> but it's a weird thing to do. It's a weird thing to do with your ribs. Also with with Icarosaurus, and I I don't know how big Icarosaurus is. Uh, uh, not terribly big. I, let me, let I me assume see not because it's a glider. Internet tells me. But also its ribs are so much longer than Draco lizards, and like Draco lizard ribs, the flap folds up and. When it's folded, you can't tell that Draco lizards are gliding lizards. Yes, they just look like a like a little like a little lizard, like a fence lizard that we have here in the U.S. And super unassuming until it transforms and yep. glides, unfurls like Buzz Lightyear, mm -hmm. sticks its wings out. But like with Icarosaurus, there's no way you were hiding those completely, right? Because they're they... longer than where your back legs are. Do did they just go along your back or something? Yeah, did you just have a Batman cape when you were running around, <laughs> and then you fold it out <laughs> and glide around the the fighting crime in the forest? Uh, Wikipedia says again, Wikipedia. So we have not uh, confirmed this information. Vetted it. Uh, Wikipedia says it was about four inches long. All right, ten centimeters from the skull to the hips. So and plus tail. Yeah. So we you were looking at so a hand size yeah. thing. That makes sense. And that's that's. A very good gliding size. Yeah. I'm also fast. So Draco lizards today have a colorful gliding surface. Yes. And I don't actually know if they do other things with their gliding surface. Yeah. Are they displaying Are with you it? using it for display? I, I have to imagine some of these ancient gliding reptiles were using these as display structures. Yeah. That it, you would flop it out at like a bird. Mm-hmm. Like wings on a bird and just move. How mobile was it? Were you able to do little maneuvers with it? 
I wonder show off to potential mates. I wonder if there's any like, and this is something I don't know about today's gliding animals, but there's got to be gliding courtships of like, I'm going Ooh. to, I'm going to glide over you or or toward you or something, you know, like birds as, will as do part of the, the the display. Yeah, to show off and to either show my patterning while it's out or to show my my physical capability. Yeah, like. There's got to be weird stuff like that going on. I don't know how good uh, eyesight gliding animals have. Like, good point. Would you need to be able to spot a mate mm-hmm. a couple trees over and then glide over to them? Because birds have exquisite eyesight. Like, yes. Birds have very, very good eyesight. I don't know if gliding animals today are like spotting the tree I'm heading towards. Like I'm going to glide mm-hmm. to that tree or if they're more leaping into the air and then i'll figure it out yep. as i go yeah on the way <laughs> on the way i will pick a tree we'll find a landing pad <laughs> uh because a lot of these animals are rather small yes and i you know small mammals have good eyesight small reptiles often will have decent mm-hmm. eyesight so it's not impossible but especially for things that are long distance gliders yes. you know gliding hundreds of feet there's no way you spotted your tree ahead of time yeah so is that even important for a gliding animal to be able to see yeah or are you just maneuverable, maneuverable enough to just okay, <laughs> make the decision one. on the fly? Well, but also gliding animals tend to live in relatively dense forests. Yeah. So it is very possible that the strategy is just, I will leap and there will be a tree in my way. Yeah, there I will go, a tree. I will go this way <laughs> and eventually I will hit a tree. Yep. Yep. <laughs> They're also often very maneuverable. Yes. So they, they absolutely could angle towards whatever they want to land on. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's super. It, it is super interesting to think about ancient gliders because today's gliders are so often peculiar and and leading very very notable lifestyles in that they're almost all arboreal and often doing similar things. So it's very cool to think of a, an ancient gliding animal and being able to ask how much of that transfers. Yeah, is is that are all these similarities between a lot of gliding animals today? Were they still similar similar in the Triassic? And odds are no. Yeah. Odds are they were doing very strange things mm-hmm. back in the Triassic. Well, they were also living, you know, they're, they're, the Triassic is such an odd time to think about because there were numerous different groups of gliding reptiles with different gliding strategies in some cases, but also in a variety of places. Yep, yep. You know, some of them are, because I'm Googling again, but mm-hmm. Cuineosaurus is from England. Coelurosaurus, uh, which is earlier, is from Madagascar. Like we've got gliders in various parts of the world who are gliding in very similar ways, which yeah. is more like modern day gliding mammals. Yes, which we see in various places gliding in similar ways, but very different from modern day reptiles. Where all of our gliding reptiles, I'm pretty sure, are in Southeast Asia. Yep, like the snakes and the lizards are in that one part of the world. Yeah. So there would have been the, the, this time period would have been fascinating. It also makes me wonder, and this is also piggybacking off of the discussion in our gliding episode, how many gliders we haven't found. Yes. From the fossil record, these they, small, delicate, lightweight animals. <laughs> yeah. Given given that we have found as many as we have, which is very surprising, is this just a thing that was always a thing? Like anywhere, any time period you go to, you can find a glider somewhere. Yep. That is gliding between the trees. Yeah, which would make sense because as soon as you have trees, it's a beneficial thing to be able to glide from them. Absolutely. And it's evolved in so many groups. mm -hmm. 
reptiles, lizards, true lizards, snakes, not true lizards, other reptile groups, various mammal groups, both placentals and marsupials, and neither. Mm-hmm. And also fish yep. and insects. This is a thing that seems like it's not particularly difficult to achieve. Yes. Yeah. Also, another thing that's neat about Icarosaurus and Draco lizards and any of the rib gliding reptiles, I've always just enjoyed for just just the quirkiness of it that completely coincidentally, they, and it's why we named them Draco lizards, you look like a European dragon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just, I don't, there's something very satisfying to me that it, ancient people, when thinking up what a monstrous reptile would look like with wings, were like, well, the only place that makes sense to put these wings is in the middle of the body. Straight in the middle of the back. Just right there on its, <laughs> at best on its shoulders. Uh, like, just slap them on there. And nature went, well, the best place to put a gliding <laughs> structure yep. is right here on the sides of the body. <laughs> Yeah, here here are some extra wings. Yeah, and it's and it like absolutely people who thought up European dragons were not inspired by Draco lizards. <laughs> One imagines not. <laughs> like there's, I've never seen any indication. It just so happened that our imagination created a very similar shaped creature yeah. that has actually evolved multiple times in different groups. Yeah. Nature, uh, totally unoriginal. Yes. Nature did it first and second and third and so many times. <laughs> well, Draco lizards today also are not limited to just the gliding surface for their adaptations. They've also got like, well, there was that study recently that showed mm -hmm. they use their hands to maneuver their, their wings. Christian Bale, Batman style. Christian Bale, Batman style. They've got that flap uh, uh, that has a name that I can't think of on the throat. Which I have also seen reference that they're using that to help them maintain stability in the air. Mm -hmm. And Icarosaurus, to my knowledge, is known from a incomplete specimen. There are parts of it we don't have. Well, did you have cool strategies? Yep. Did you have other flaps somewhere on the body that you were using to help with that gliding? Was your neck weird? Was your tail weird in some way we haven't mm -hmm. seen? Did your feet have stuff? Yeah, were your limbs, you know, do you have webbing on your limbs? Yep. Yeah, there's all sorts of... It would be fascinating to know more about the many diverse strategies that gliding reptiles have used over time. Well, and especially because as you made the comparison, the diversity of ancient gliding reptiles is more similar to the diversity of modern gliding mammals mm -hmm. in their distribution and variation. That it makes sense that you would have some uber-duper specialized ones like the Kaluga, which is... Uh, uh, webbed all the way around yes, the body is just a flap of skin. Yeah, it's just a kite with a face in it. <laughs> well, and there were like Charovipteryx, mm -hmm. the pr purported delta wing shaped gliding reptile. Yeah, so just all sorts of weird, very weird stuff. Yeah, so cool. Gliding, gliding animals are super cool, and the Triassic gliders are just this fascinating bunch mm -hmm. of different approaches to gliding. Also, just it's itty bitty and it's fluttering around. It's flitting around. Not fluttering. Probably not. Flitting. Not around. if things are going well. <laughs> There's an updraft. Ah! <laughs> but that's cool. That's oh, that's a very pleasing. Like when you get to see videos of Draco lizards gliding, it's very neat and just adorable on how 
small and quick they are. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to think about that happening in the past. Uh, it makes me happy. Oh, man. If they did have a cape that they couldn't completely fold up, that would be an exceptional opportunity to develop camouflage. Oh, yeah. To Maybe make it leaf-shaped or leaf-colored or something that you would just, uh, an animal would be walking along on a branch and see this weird-looking leaf and then get too close and the leaf would fly away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very cool creatures. Elizabeth, thank you so much uh, for that request. And actually, another thing that's cool about that is it's from New Jersey. Yes. And that's a cool place that doesn't have a whole lot of different cool fossils to claim to fame. It has Hadrosaurus, which is kind of a big deal. Yes. The first dinosaur in North America. That's pretty cool. But also, Icarosaurus is very cool find for New Jersey. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so thank you, Elizabeth, for your support, uh, for your encouragement, for your kind words that you like to give us, and also for your kind donations on Patreon. Yeah. And for recommending us to talk in your mini episode about this super cool little creature uh, that ties into just this fascinating evolutionary trend over time. We've had fun. We hope you have also had fun. And we hope that we'll continue to see you and hear from you in the future. Bye. Bye. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, Stephen. And welcome to your personal patron mini episode. You asked us if we would talk about corvids. And the answer is yes. Happily. Corvids are great. <laughs> we talk about birds rather infrequently on the podcast. Yeah, I was... I They're was, not alone. Like, we don't yeah. do a lot of fish mm-hmm. discussion, you mm-hmm. know, as, as opposed to things like dinosaurs and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, birds, and as we have both, I think, expressed in the past, uh, we both find birds fascinating and incredibly unfamiliar. Well, it, for me, it falls into the cat. I was literally just talking to Anne about this, that I find the concept of bird just amazingly interesting. Very cool. But then I am not, uh, my interest wanes when it comes to like identifying individual birds. Mm-hmm. And, and like, songbirds, for me, in my brain, is very much like, yeah, yeah, bird, 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 bird. Sure, sure. Red, blue, all yellow, of, green. All of those 4,000 species. Yeah. That's bird. Slightly different colorations, <laughs> slightly different sizes. And they are, you know, each one absolutely is interesting, I'm sure, if I took the time. Absolutely. But it doesn't click in my brain to... Well, there, there's a reason why the two episodes that we've done dedicated to specific groups of birds have been vultures and penguins. Yes. Because they're very strange, very distinctive birds. And speaking of distinctive mm-hmm. birds, corvids is a great choice. Absolutely. Like, I-, I am usually a person who leans toward the big ground birds. Yes. <laughs> but man, corvids, it- if it weren't for the cassowary existing, <laughs> corvids would probably be my favorite group of birds. So the official list, and by official I mean on Wikipedia, yes. of birds that are included within the family corvidae are nutcrackers, Cheapies, jackdaws, rooks, jays, and uh, the the ones that I think of first, ravens and crows. Yes. Uh, and in fact, I've seen the Corvidae, the family, called the crow family. Yes, exactly. It is very often identified by them, and they are like one of the, the dominating groups within that group. Like, yeah. they make up a chunk of it. Well, they're also, corvids in general are a very prevalent Mm -hmm. and distinctive group of birds because they are 
all over the world. Yep. They're a very widespread family of birds. And they're also really big. Yes. Like they're passerines. Mm-hmm. So they're in the same group as uh, you name a bird that that group. Yeah, you're perching birds is I think. Sparrows yeah. mm-hmm. and, and all of those. But crows and ravens are big mm-hmm. for that group of birds. They're yes. not, you know, eagles, but they're big birds. Yeah, like as far as the average size of bird goes, they mm-hmm. definitely trend at least toward the the upper middle. Yeah. If not the lower upper scale. Like they are <laughs> they're sizable enough. Yeah, they are they're really interesting. They're also you mentioned they're widespread. They are an interesting widespread group because lots of others, when I, especially with birds, when I think of it, I think of like pigeons and your, you know, smaller seed eating birds where you're small, you, you breed quickly, you're everywhere. The, the general kind of mouse situation of, yeah, yeah, you're everywhere because you're small, you eat enough things and you make lots of babies. Right. You're sort of the, the general ideal of a bird yeah like generic image of bird and that works everywhere and crows uh, uh definitely and ravens and and their cousins definitely have a bit of that going in that their overall body shape is pretty standard bird yeah they don't have some unusual uh, a completely right you're not a heron you're not yeah. an ostrich there's nothing particularly weird yes at, at first glance uh so you've got that general bird design but they fall into an interesting category of like you're successful because you are clever enough to, to make use of wherever you are. Mm-hmm. And like it's because like rodents, it, it has that feeling of like you're good just because you're the Swiss army of animal. Sure. Like you can chew through anything. You can swim. You can climb. You can <laughs> eat whatever you want. You make as many like, yeah, there's not many problems that aren't you don't already have a tool for. And crows and their families seem to have some of that going on mm-hmm. in that they tend to be, as, as far as I know, across the family. They eat all sorts yep. of things. They can survive in all sorts of habitats. They have a fairly generalized body plan that is just good for doing bird stuff. But also, they are extremely adaptable yes. and behaviorally flexible. Um, and this kind of, you know, this... If you were checking your watch and timing us, however many minutes to talking about crow intelligence. Oh, yeah. Because no. that's the the famous thing about this group is that they are highly intelligent. And when I think of intelligent, you know, I often think of, you know, you hear stories of them doing cool problem solving things. Yes. You know, uh, experiments where they'll use tools mm-hmm. to like get food out of somewhere. I often think of the one, uh, the displacement experiments. Yes. Yes. Where you've got a cup of water and there's food in it and the crows will drop rocks into the water to raise the water level. Cool stuff like that. But they're also like very social Mm -hmm. in many species. They also are very good at like remembering places and places that they've hidden stuff or location. They've like all the ways that we interpret intelligence and cognitive skill and other species. This family exhibits most of them. Yeah, they check in most of the boxes. Mm-hmm. And that that's very much what I, like, while, while a rodent very often already just has the adapted tools to handle most situations, crows, I feel like, very often don't, but they'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what's so interesting is, like, I could put a crow basically anywhere on the planet, and I would feel relatively confident that they could make it there, not because you've already got the ability to handle it but you'll look 
You'll observe, you'll watch the other animals, and you'll figure out where a crow fits in here. Right. Like, that's what well, fascinates... Find the crow-shaped hole in this environment yeah. and fill it. You've become a generalist, not because you're just anatomically good at everything, but that you will figure out how to fit into this environment. And that's a very interesting it's a very human mm-hmm. way of being in the world of like we're not supposed to be in the tundra but we'll figure it out we're making it we're making it work yep that's cool i've actually seen uh discussions and I've, I've seen this in reference to birds i've seen this in reference to other things the idea of uh, one of the potential drivers of yeah, we we always have to be i'm always cautious to just say intelligence because that's a term that is very hard to define. Absolutely. But cognitive abilities, problem-solving skills. Our anthropocentric definition of intelligence. The sort of things that we look at and go, that's a smart animal. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen discussions in scientific circles that one of the potential drivers for that kind of behavior might be difficult living conditions. Yeah, absolutely. That just like living in harsh conditions might drive the evolution of unusual anatomical features certain harsh conditions in certain groups of animals might drive the evolution of being able to problem solve and figure stuff out so that they can do exactly what you're describing of yeah this this is a tough environment to live in but i can figure it out because i've evolved this particular kind of brain function that lets me go all right yeah i'm gonna drop these nuts onto the street so that cars run them over and then fly down and pick the nuts up when the light turns red. Absolutely. Well, and it, and it makes sense how something like that could evolve before you ever even get to the, you know, I'm making my own tool mm-hmm. and, and modifying sticks and stuff. Just starting with the social stuff you were talking about, like uh, crows are the ones famous for it, but like this group's uh, social complexity is, is so intense. Some of them... In terms of just social corvids, rooks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know, are famous in some places for roosting in just huge yeah. numbers of social groups. The time I had that really made me re-look at crows and, and observe them in a new light was when I learned about them not only, like, remembering things. And I think this one was specifically talking about the um, experiments that one university did where they were capturing crows and then realized that the crows were remembering the researchers and mm-hmm. setting up alarms. So they had to start wearing masks to go do their crow population studies so that that way they wouldn't harass those students. Yep. And, uh, I, and I've seen reference to studies of crow that, that have found uh, that crows can recognize human facial absolutely. features or even behavioral cues. The part of those studies that I've heard a couple of different times that really just blew my mind is that there's been at least a couple of examples of those kinds of studies where then when though after those students graduated, finished their research and came back, they were still recognized. And it was like, no, it's been enough years that sh- this should not be the same crows. Mm-hmm. This should be at least the next generation of crows, if not the some of the next next. But they had passed the knowledge on. And that's the part that's like, that's society. Like now you're like orcas and and primates. Like that's oral tradition Mm -hmm. that you are passing on knowledge and culture and, and, and behavior. Like not all crows scream at this type of face, but we do. That's what this flock. That's what this murder does. Yes. Is we scream (laughs) at these faces 
like my grandfather did and like you will do. Yes. Like that's society. <laughs> that that was the time I had a moment of like, okay, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. <laughs> let's let's re-examine all this because that's amazing. Yeah. They there have been it's it, when you talk about studies of animals that are impressive in their cognitive abilities. Things that we humans look at and go, whoa, that's cool. Mm-hmm. That did not expect it, uh, that that another species would do that. It's you hear about primates and not all primates, certain primates, mm-hmm. certain cetaceans, corvids and parrots. Yep. <laughs> like those are the big ones. Yep. And yeah, crows are always up there. One of the things, because uh, I was doing a little bit of, you know, refreshing my memory, reading about corvids before this, like we do for these mini episodes. And there was a mention of corvids crows and ravens in mythology yep 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 and in symbolism and in culture and just the note that they have appeared in many cultures myth mythological stories and things like that which on the one hand is not surprising they live in all sorts of places they're very distinctive birds they sound distinctive Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like I don't know bird calls at all, but even I know what a, you know, it's a, if it's a crow raven type animal. Yeah, when a bunch of dark colored birds fly overhead and are making that noise, you're yeah. like, okay, well, so yeah. yeah. Those are either crows or ravens, I can't tell the difference. <laughs> but yes, that group. But one thing that was noted is that they are often represented in various cultures' mythology as clever yes. and intelligent yep. or trick, you know, tricky, yes. uh, uh, things like that. Which is extremely cool because, and this is like, you know, Native American traditions going back quite a ways. I know uh, Aesop's Fables uh, Mm -hmm. features them a bunch of times. And that's really cool because those are things that way predate our modern scientific investigations where we get to go, oh yes, we did a controlled experiment. And it turns out that these birds remember things nine months later, or it Mm -hmm. turns out that they can... make us stick into a tool and use it for a thing. That means that just people living alongside these animals over time would look at them and go, that's a real smart bird. Yes. That we've just been observing that. It's just been an obvious Mm -hmm. thing about them. Very much like these days you hear stories from people that are, you know, I'll I'll go online and you'll hear a story from someone who's like, yeah, I've made friends with the crows in my neighborhood yes. yep. by accident. And now I have these crows who follow me and they're always anecdotal. So it's never like this is a clear empirical study that shows this cognition, but it sure sounds like a bunch of animals doing something very insightful, very mm-hmm. intuitive that we humans have just been watching these birds for hundreds and thousands of years and being impressed mm-hmm. by how seemingly clever and smart they are. Yes. It, that's that's really, like when you're clever enough that you show up in our mythology as the smart ones. Yes. That's pretty cool. Well, and also kudos to you for living up to your reputation. Right. Because like owls, <laughs> have, owls, owls yeah. have a very similar <laughs> one and they are not right. problem solvers. <laughs> So it's cool that like we noticed that and then we studied it and was like, no, no, no. The anecdotal stories seem to hold up. Mm-hmm. And then we also took a look inside and go, no, no, their brain to body size also matches yeah. chimps and dolphins and almost matches up. Like their brain to body size is what we would expect for the behavior we're seeing. They are legitimately unusually brain-powered yeah. for 
a bird and for just an animal. So it is really, really fascinating. And it, it colors everything about them because, like like I said, it's a very human situation of how they're successful around the world. It it feels that way when you talk about us or orcas, where it's like mm-hmm. you can't really separate any part of their behavior from their intelligence, just like you couldn't with us. Sure. Like That's just, they, you have to, anytime I see a crow doing something, I don't think like, oh, that's just your instincts driving you to do that. I I go. Why are you doing that? What's your logic? Yeah, yeah. What, <laughs> what's your reasoning? What's your re- yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's your motivation? Because with any other animal, I'd be like, well, that that lizard's sitting there because it's warm there, and they wanted they they were feeling too cold, so they were driven to find warmth. Sure, but like, which is probably doing a slight disservice to the lizard. Yes, there's logical thinking there, but it doesn't spur that same process of being like, is this. I don't feel I don't feel like that lizard's up to something. Well, and it's like, yeah, as <laughs> a crow, it's like, are you how many how many steps have you thought ahead of this situation? Yes. What chess game are you playing today? Well, or are you just sitting up there? It's the it's kind of the I would use this at the aquarium all the time when people would talk about, you know, the fish looks sad because it was just sitting there. But that's what that species of fish does. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to explain, it's like, well, you, you can't use the same sense of motivations and emotions right you know like is there such thing as a sad ant do they have emotions we don't do do they have sad yeah do they have sad do they have thoughts or do they just have very complicated sequence of instincts interactions that that's hard for us we can't determine that Mm -hmm. that's too obscure a thing and that gets you know that's always been a very hard thing to map with animals of like how much is a snake thinking or how much is it just processing information is right is processing with, info the and, same as thinking. Right. And where is the line? Yeah. Like, but with crows and like the short list of other primates and cetacean, like I'm pretty sure our brains are doing almost the same thing, <laughs> which is very, very, we don't often get to see our way of kind of interacting with the world mirrored in another species. Yeah. Well, and another interesting way that, corvids are similar to those other classically considered intelligent groups is that they are also very social. Yes. Uh, In many species, they are cooperative parents Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. cooperative nesters where they, it isn't just a crow off there being smart. They tend to gather in groups and work together on stuff, not working together in the sense of like pack hunting, but they will raise young together. They'll make nests together. They'll forage for food together. They'll mob predators together. Like, that's mm-hmm. very famous where you'll see a bunch of crows chasing right. a hawk like away. Jays are very mm-hmm. famous for that. Which is very interesting because, and our sample size is small, but it raises the question of, does social, does complex social behavior naturally emerge mm-hmm. in so-called intelligent species or were you able to evolve that level of cleverness because you are social species? Yes, which I've often seen as one of the suggestions that the more complex your social hierarchy gets, uh, the more brain power and memory you need to keep track of said hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Just to remember, all right, you're on top, you're second from the top, you're almost the same, and you know, just who's right. Keep, where. Keeping track of the politics. Exactly. That you just need more brain power to map that and that that then opens doors for well while you have all that brain power right might as well learn how to crack that nut your beak's not good at cracking i've also seen it noted that uh corvids also tend to uh, uh grow up slow yeah 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 they spend a long time as young 
which is a lot of developmental time available for learning, mm-hmm. for brain development, which is something that is potentially more feasible in a group of, of animals that is highly social. Yes. Right? We see that with a lot of primates. We see that with a lot of cetaceans. It is, in fact, one of the reasons cited oftentimes for why cephalopods aren't as dynamic yes. and social as, as they otherwise seem like they could be because they do seem to be very intelligent. Mm-hmm. That complex social behavior and familiar levels of seeming intelligence seem to go very much hand in hand. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it, they are, they fall into that group of when people like to ask the questions of like, if humans disappeared, what would, what species would takes over next would form the next civilization? And, you know, I mean, of course, the other primates. Right. They're, they're, they're right there. They are pretty, they're, they've Although, probably got a little bit of a lead. We are uh, creating a world that is very difficult mm-hmm. for other primates and cetaceans to live in. Yes. Mm-hmm. Whereas corvids are doing pretty well. Yep. So maybe, maybe they are going to survive the human experience and be the ones left standing. Yep. And when, like, I've often heard the, the thinking of why haven't dolphins developed as much tool use as some of the other highly intelligent groups. And the answer often is they, they don't have hands mm-hmm. and they don't have particularly mobile mouth. Like that's right. That they don't really have the dexterity for that to be an easy option for them. And crows lack the hands, but they have very nimble beaks. Yeah. Well, and cause bird beaks yeah. are extremely, we've talked about this on the podcast they are an extremely dexterous a finesse finesse tool yeah yes and that's that is probably one of the other things that i love so much about corvids is like they're they just look cool like yeah i was going to say before we wrap up yeah. the discussion we do need to at least make brief mention of the fact that crows and ravens and the like also just look cool they look so cool they're I, very striking birds yes and i would assume that is another huge reason they've made it into human culture and storytelling mm-hmm. over the well, years i assume it's also part of why their other reputation in human cultural storytelling is being ominous yes Absolutely. And intimidating because, yeah, they're big. They're often well, crows and ravens in particular are dark colored mm-hmm. birds. They have that caw mm-hmm. that is not like the cheerful singing of a songbird. It's that. Ha! They're they're also associated with carrion a yes. lot of the time because yep. they will scavenge. They'll feed on carrion. They don't have cute little songbird beaks. They've got this somewhat <laughs> the, menacing nut crushing beak. Yeah, they've got this decent like daggerish beaks sticking mm-hmm. off their face. And so they are impressive birds. I also, and this is just a very personal uh, uh, <laughs> preference when it comes to birds. Cause like, I think birds look great, but then like, I'll see them move around. And when the, the ones that hop, which a lot of her, uh, a lot of perching birds hop, right, they don't they really walk boing, 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 boing. because their, their legs are That's best. That's what they're built for. <laughs> yeah. Together <laughs> since they're meant to be on a branch yes. and they're hopping from branch to branch. And like, that's very cute. But it's not very cool. Sure. And like as a kid, that was like, cute's fine, but cool will always win out over cute for me. Right, but you're no cassowary. Yeah, no. Stalking through the grass. And crows walk. Yeah, they do. And it makes me very happy. <laughs> and it's still a little like hopping kind of, but like it's fun watching them walk around slow. Like when you just see them out in a yard mm-hmm. and they're just kind of walking through the grass. It's like, that's a theropod. You're that's a little dinosaur. That's so cool. Oh, <laughs> uh, Stephen, this is a great choice of animals to have us talk about. Uh, as you can intuit, 
we could geek out about crows and stuff for quite a long time. Uh, this is a very cool group of birds. It's I suspect it is only a matter of time before they get an episode of the podcast. Oh, yes. I, I Then we can talk all about... Like, I've had a dream of making one of those crow vending machines where you can train <laughs> them to bring money to then f- dispense peanuts. Yep. Uh, I thought, oh, man, that just is <laughs> such a pleasing idea. Yeah, so there will almost certainly be more discussion of Corvids in the future. Let's wrap it up there. Yeah. That's a good discussion. We have to stop ourselves. Yes. At a certain point. The min- This is a challenge with the mini episodes <laughs> off, is that we have to at some point go, all right, this is enough. Yep. <laughs> we need to stop. <laughs> Steven, thank you for your suggestion. And thank you, of course, uh, for supporting us on Patreon thank as you much so as you much. do. Uh, we really appreciate it. Stay tuned for more stuff to come. There's more episodes coming out. Uh, we hope that you enjoy your little personalized mini episode. Bye-bye. See ya. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, Tracy. And welcome to your personal Patreon mini episode. As thanks for your subscription and donations to us on Patreon, We've got a little episode here just for you on the topic that you requested, which is thylacines. Ah. Also thylacines. Oh. This is, I've heard it called thylacines, uh, uh, this this animal. I've always said thylacine. I don't think that it makes a whole lot of a difference. The genus is thylacinus. Yeah. It makes sense. Okay, that makes... Sure. Although you could also pronounce that thylacinus and, you know, who's going to have a problem with it. But we're going to call them thylacines because that's how we do it. I don't know if that's a North American thing. Who knows? Good question. I I do like the sound of it better, but it's also the one I'm familiar with. So, you know. Exactly. That's always... I always find that funny when it comes to pronunciation. It's like, ah, that one sounds silly. It's like, well, of course it does. You heard it second. Yes. Exactly. (laughs) The thylacine... Uh, a.k.a. the Tasmanian Wolf, a.k.a. Tasmanian Tiger, a.k.a. I'm sure a bunch of other names. Mm -hmm. Very cool group of animals. Very famous group of animals. Yeah. Uh, Thylacines are a very interesting case of animals as as far as sort of general perception and Mm -hmm. understanding of them go. Because they occupy this kind of intermediate between the ways we talk about modern living species and the ways we talk about extinct species. Yes. Because thylacines, they spent so much time living alongside actual, like, modern humans. Mm-hmm. Like, they were in the wild, at least in Tasmania, up until about a century ago. So there's a lot of information about them. There's a lot of connection to them. There's a lot of cultural significance to them, mm-hmm. especially in Tasmania in particular. But they're also extinct. Yep. And they are gone. So they're a very interesting, and and I think they get a lot more attention as far as recently extinct animals go than, say, other famous examples like Stellar's sea cow Mm -hmm. or even dodos. Like, dodos, everybody knows dodos, and they are a very famous example of of a species that humans drove to extinction. But I don't get the impression that there are many people or cultures around the world who are like, really attached to dodos. Well, like I saw a video just the other day about dodos and they, I think part of the reason that they fall into different categories, like the dodo, we didn't really start paying attention to the fact that the dodo had gone extinct until it sounds like, well, after it had gone extinct. Mm. And so like we, yeah, once people went, all right, so this bird's gone extinct. What was it like? And people realized we don't have any specimens. Right. 
we have a couple of drawings, but not even many of like people only started paying attention to it well after it had already been wiped out. Yeah. And so it was this kind of historical extinction. Like that happened when we weren't paying attention. I feel like the thylacine falls into a different emotional category for us and interest category because they were around up and like we have video of the last thylacine. Mm-hmm. Like we had cameras. This yeah. was this is during the age of film that we lost this species. So you were this went extinct almost like they made it almost up until we were actually paying attention to the idea that we were wiping out species yeah. and we were becoming environmentally con like it was so close. Yeah. Like I, I think that there's also something to be said, probably com- specifically comparing them to dodos. Dodos are a relatively small and relatively sorry, dodos inconsequential species of animal. Yeah, like they lived on an island, maybe yeah. two islands, Mauritius, and I, I think maybe a, another nearby island. Uh, this isn't a discussion about dodos. I yeah. didn't research dodos, uh, but they lived in a very restricted area. Um, they didn't encounter a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know off the top of my head sort of the history of human occupation in that area, in that region. But you know, there there weren't a lot of people in the world who had interacted specifically with dodos. Certainly, up until the ones that wiped out dodos. Yep, we don't find a lot of we find cave art of thylacines. Like, right, we don't find that same cultural connection. And thylacines are were relatively widespread. They lived in close connection with people for a very long time, especially back when they were in mainland Australia. But also thylacines were apex predators. Yep. They are big. These are wolf-sized animals. That's a big animal. They are predators. It's one of the reasons that they got so much negative attention from humans. Yep. For the same reason that wolves have gotten negative attention is that they were seen as dangerous and harmful to livestock and things like that. And so it's... My mind definitely categorizes the dodos and even things like stellar sea cow as like, it's still super sad you're gone. Mm -hmm. But considering when you got wiped out, I mean, the chances that you did make it through were almost lower than not because that's what we were just doing back then. Right. It's just just culling the earth. Thylacines almost made it long enough to where we we to be saved. Yes, exactly. It feels like we just... We just were barely too late yep. to shift our mentality and save this species. Like, they could have been saved. I was reading uh, a, a, an anecdote. This was I was going through the Wikipedia page and just sort of refreshing my memory on thylacine stuff. And there is a description in there that the last thylacine, the one that you talked mm-hmm. about, died at the zoo and then was sent to a museum. But it wasn't documented properly, yep, yep. Uh, apparently, from, from what I read. And the likely reason why it wasn't documented properly is because it was collected illegally <laughs> and brought to the zoo. So the zoo was like, all right, well, we're not going to write down where it actually came from because that would be, that's illegal. Yes. We should not document that. And because of that, the specimen was lost for mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. for decades and no one had access to it. Like, we almost got to a time of really caring about conservation and really caring about documenting that sort of stuff uh, across most institutions. And they just barely missed out on it. And it's like, and it's not to say that like we've turned things around and things don't go extinct because of us anymore. Right. But 
a lot of it, it is not as common in, in the more recent history that we're wiping out large widespread right you know well they went extinct not long after a national bounty was put on them yes to kill a bunch and again in what i was reading i saw the number cited as like something like two thousand rewards were given yep for killed thylacines and that's a thing that we just generally frown upon these days exactly that's not a thing that you're likely to see much in modern times because we are a bit more conscious, mm-hmm. uh, a bit more environmentally conscious about stuff like that. Yeah. So they, they, they I think for, for like the, the human psyche, they, they often feel like a missed chance. Yep. That like. Well, they're also big and charismatic. Yes. And like they are called wolves and tigers because of that, a similarity, right? And appear and they look similar. They're shaped like wolves and they're striped like tigers. Yep. And we love wolves and tigers. <laughs> like those are extremely beloved groups of animals, and they are also icons of conservation. Yep. Like tigers are a famous example of an endangered species and protected species. Wolves have all sorts of cool success stories mm-hmm. here in North America, where they were wiped out of places and we've put them back to places. So you've got these animals that have these stories and that we just love. We put them in our movies and we put them in our stories and we have stuffed animals of them and they're really charismatic big animals and thylacines are so similar to those and it feels yeah if you had just made it like 50 more years yep you may have been up there with those yes beloved large cuddly furry predators that are a conservation success story yeah Absolutely. But they're not. Yeah. They're a the opposite. They are the opposite of a conservation success story. They are perhaps uh, the most famous story yes. of a species wiped out by humans at a time where we unequivocally should have known better. Yes. Yes. This precisely. wasn't like several thousand years ago we showed up on an island and hunted everything for food and then left and never spared a thought to it. Yeah, we're, we, we were... Still struggling with the idea of extinctions and like sure no we this was the early 1900s yep uh, we as a species we knew better already and we did it anyway yeah and I think that the other big thing that is so notable with them is their absence is very obvious mm-hmm. in that there's not another large predatory marsupial that like okay we lot we lost the thylacine. You know, but we still have the, the Tasmanian bear. Right. Like if know. we lost tigers. It's yeah. Like that, yeah. But we've got lions and leopards and jaguars and all these cool big cats. There's no other animal left like the thylacine. We have no. Tasmanian devils, which is the now largest predatory marsupial. Right. Which is silly to think of because. It's so much smaller. so small. <laughs> it's so much different in their anatomy and their shape. They, they are a very different animal. So mm-hmm. it's. It's we lost that and we lost something truly unique to the planet. Yes. I think that's that's what like we lost this thing. And not only is this species gone, but that kind of animal is gone now. Mm -hmm. And we and may never be again. There may never be a pouched predator. Right. Again of that size. Like that may be it. That chapter of Earth may be over less than a century ago. Yeah. And that's that's very sobering. Absolutely. Well, and we we express all these thoughts, and it's no surprise at all that there are so many people obsessed with trying to find evidence of still living thylacines. Like, what an incredible discovery it would be 
Because it would be a second chance. Exactly. It'd be an opportunity exactly. for us to go, oh, th- we, we can do it. We can do, we could, th- there they are. We found four of them living in the woods of Tasmania somewhere. Uh, would that be the quickest that a, <laughs> yeah, that right? a area was ever designated a protected <laughs> region? Surely. Like, I don't know if, if it's a, officially a national park. I don't know how it works yeah, yeah. in Australia, but, like, but whatever their version of it is, <laughs> would that be the fastest that one was ever erected? I was like, no humans are allowed to walk in this place. Yep. Starting right now. Yep. If you're bipedal, get out. <laughs> yeah. It's, that means you, kangaroos. Yep. No, nope. get out of here. <laughs> it it is it is I definitely think that is a big driving aspect of of that side of the crypto community. The the cryptid community mm-hmm. of hoping that they're <laughs> the crypto community right? is something different <laughs> yep, now. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that the, that it is that feeling of human guilt that that hopefully there are some left and we can make right and it it, i always feel bad when i go into my my cryptozoology mode when those things come up because it's like i would absolutely love us to find some yeah but it is very common that the same conversations that surround bigfoot now have circled and started to orbit the thylacine Mm -hmm. and it is of course, not impossible that there could be a population because we know this animal did exist. Sure. But unlikely. Unlikely. Like, given what evidence we have, they're probably not out there. Yeah. And th- this is a, like even more so than cryptids like Nessie and Bigfoot, which we don't know what their behavior would be or what their ranges would be. Like, no, mm-hmm. we do know where these lived and we do know mm-hmm. what habitats they occupied. There's lots of stuff we don't know because we were not studying them while yeah. we were wiping them out as we would have today, but which actually is kind of an interesting thing about thylacines that I was thinking about mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. prep for this episode that we have so much information about thylacines. And this is one of those places where it is that weird overlap mm-hmm. between living animals and extinct animals. There is so much that we absolutely know about thylacines. We have video footage, we have their complete genome, like we have specimens of them in museums. But then there's also all this stuff that we just don't know. Like, we don't know what they ate. Yeah. Like, we don't actually know, like... What consisted their diet. Yeah, what kind of diet they had. We don't know a whole lot about their social or reproductive behavior, which is such a weird Mm -hmm. thing to have because they made it far enough for us to collect them in museums and take pictures of them, but not far enough... Not long enough into, you know, the realm of scientific exploration for us to start documenting those behavioral things. So they exist in this weird limbo space where we know so much more about them than you'd expect for an extinct species. And so much less than you'd expect for a large apex predator that lived alongside modern humans. And not just modern humans in the archaeological sense of, like, homo sapien, but, like, last century (laughs) humans. Just a handful of generations ago. Yeah. Like, like, like there are people alive today who coexisted with thylacines. And so, like, that's that's something I think about. And I feel like they are a really great, uh, I don't want to say great, but, you know, they are a poignant example of that where we were not paying attention to them scientifically while they were around mm-hmm. the way they deserved. And by the time we were asking those questions they were gone Mm -hmm. and it makes me think of we mention this every now in the podcast where there are certain groups that are just notably understudied today Mm -hmm. you know whether it be a species of shark or group of animal 
where it's like, yeah, we know things about them, but people just aren't asking the same questions that they ask about other groups with this group. And so there's a whole bunch of questions that it seems like we should know because we spend a lot of time with these animals or we, they are well known as a, a, a presence on the earth today, but we just, no one's done that research and that my brain will then go, yeah, so if they disappeared tomorrow, that's it. All those questions we've not been asking. That was our chance. Would be gone. We would just have to accept that we will probably never know those things. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, 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 it is a very depressing, depressing. And, and <laughs> it's very depressing. The thylacine kind of acts as that harsh example, that life yeah. lesson of it of like, no, no, this is what we're talking about. Here's a bunch of obvious information. Right. That we just never bothered to write down until the last one, uh, after the last one died. It's also an interesting thing with the thylacine, because you were talking about how unique it is, Mm -hmm. that it it has that sense of not only is this a missed opportunity for this species, but this whole type of animal. One thing that I have never really put a lot of thought to, but which is obvious uh, in thinking about it, is that there is also a fossil record of thylacines. Yes. Yeah. this was already the remnant mm-hmm. of this formerly more diverse group of animals. This sort of ancient history of wolf-shaped marsupial predators yeah. that exists in the fossil record of Australia and nearby places, which is a very cool... It's kind of like when we talk about like Thylacoleo mm-hmm. and Thylacosmilus, these marsupial predators that are convergent with things that we still have today. With the thylacine, we so often focus on the thylacine, right? Yes. Thylacinus cynocephalus, I think is the, the, the species, that I often forget that there were more. Yeah. <laughs> this was a whole group of animals. Mm-hmm. And I don't know very much about the fossil record of thylacines. Me or, neither. Or how good a record it actually is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, me neither. And it's, which is another thing that's notable about the group, just studying them from uh, an evolutionary perspective is they're also a, a iconic example of convergent evolution. Yes. The, uh, the other thing they're famous. Yes. For. That they are, we keep calling them wolf-like because they are unusually wolf. So wolf-like. Oh, it like is You copied weird. off the page of the wolf sitting next to you in class. Yes. And so it's, it is fascinating getting to see that, that convergence and that it was, a long, you know, a history of that, mm-hmm. that this wasn't just the recent group got there, but there's been this other group of mammals that realized, hmm, if I want to run down prey and kill it, having a long snout and powerful legs. And this is the shape. For this it. is a good shape to be to do that. That's very, very cool. Yeah. How cool would it be if they were around <laughs> for us to make those comparisons? Because then they could be an iconic example of something that is called convergent. But actually, here's a whole bunch of the weird differences mm-hmm. that we see when we watch their behavior. Yes. Uh, but alas, yep. uh, we do not have that. Tracy, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you for suggesting this topic. We're sorry that it became depressing <laughs> and philosophical. But you requested thylacines. <laughs> it's bound to happen. This is thylacines, probably only second to some Galapagos tortoises, is the first group that comes to mind when I think of endlings. The, yes. Where there is a single member left. Yep. It, so, yeah, they they are right there in that, that d- depressing circle of conversation. Well, 
this it often comes up in the mini episodes. It comes up in the main episodes, but in the mini episodes especially because they're not really structured. Yeah. Like main episodes, the the question of here's this group of animals, how how much of this discussion is going to be turned put put to the thing about this group. Exactly. Like, because it's a little bit of what first comes to our minds. Right. When well, you like mention this animal. Parasaurolophus. Mm-hmm. Like, cool. How much are we going to talk about noises? Yep. That that's that is the thing with this type of animal. With thylacines, it's like, yep, time to depressing discussion about <laughs> extinction. <laughs> about forty five seconds. Yeah. So that's that's what's very tempting to discuss. Well, if we do an episode about mm-hmm. thylacines someday, we'll get to talk about their fossil record and what's known of their behavior and anatomy and all that stuff. Um, but the kind of off the cuff discussion about thylacines is a conversation about extinction and yeah. conservation. But to add a, just a slight uptick to the conversation, part of the reason why it that is the way things lean when we think about thylacines is because we miss them. Like yeah. they were cool animals, very cool, charismatic. They're, they're uh, I was glancing over the Wikipedia. They're on the coat of arms of Tasmania. I think. Yeah, like they are still to this day representative of pieces of land and groups of people like we we are we are mourning their loss and that's why we are so focused on their loss because we loved them and how cool that there is a nation whose coat of arms or whatever it is is this recently extinct animal it's like in fantasy settings where you have the house it was like the the targaryen yeah yeah yes dragons are our official animal they're extinct. The last of the dragons were wiped out many years ago, but we remain where they remain on our coat of arms. Exactly. Yep. That's super cool. <laughs> it's really impressive. And so, yeah. Yeah. Way to go, thylacines. We are sad because how much we love these animals. <laughs> yeah. So thanks again, Tracy. This has been a lot of fun. We hope that you have enjoyed our discussion of thylacines. We hope that you'll stick around and continue to support us and listen to the podcast. We appreciate both of those. We appreciate the Patreon stuff, which is great, uh, but also just you being a fan and listening to us. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And this this was a fun one. It, as sad as it was, it's always nice to get to talk <laughs> about thylacines. Bye for now. See ya. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, Oscar. Welcome to your personal patron mini episode where you requested for us to talk about one of your favorite animals, and it happened to be Shrikes. Which is a very good choice for a good animal to talk about. Butcher birds. Butcher birds. Yeah, Shrikes are a very interesting group. Because they are, they're in the group, the passerines, which is your big group of perching birds and right. songbirds. You think and, of a bird. Yeah. You think of a bird that isn't a flightless rat type yeah, yeah. or a bird of prey. Yeah. And it's one of these. So they, they fall within that group, but then they are predatory and have very unusual behavior. Yeah. When I was reviewing sort of, you know, reading through the Wikipedia page, reviewing some information about this group, it was noted multiple times they are not birds of prey. Yep. They are technically not considered birds of prey, even though they are extremely accomplished hunting birds. Yes. And so it is, it's like when you find those examples in nature of like, here's, you know, this mouse, but the grasshopper mouse is a specialized insectivore and is a predatory mouse. Like, 
Right. It feels like that of like, here's this group that is eating seeds and fruits and yeah, singing, singing songs. Yeah. And then this one has a hooked beak mm-hmm. and is often eating insects like a lot of the others are. Sure. But then we'll also take down lizards and like stuff. Bats. And yeah. Things. I saw one, at least one report of a shrike eating a snake. <laughs> yes. That's yes. Like, that's, yep. Of yep. course you did. Well, and I, the, the sort of evolutionary trajectory of a group of birds where you said, cool, this is a whole family of birds, a whole lineage of birds that is not highly adapted for hunting. Here is this one group, this family, Laniidae, the, the family of the shrikes, which are going in the direction of becoming extremely accomplished hunters. However, unlike birds of prey, unlike your hawks and eagles and stuff, you don't have talons. Yeah. Which is really like, that's a big part of the bird of prey strategy well that that's so not only is it so important to that group you know, actually evolutionarily but it's so iconic right to predatory birds that like we put those we put talons on any scary thing that flies yes. <laughs> in media in games <laughs> well and it's also what they're using for hunting like mm-hmm. predator birds of prey are not grabbing stuff out of the air with their mouths most of the time they are using those those talons we talked in the claws episode about how those will be slightly different between different groups of birds of prey because of the slight differences in their hunting. Like those are so important for a, a hunting bird to have. And then you've got this group of shrikes like, Hey, you don't have the feet. You got perching feet. You have perching feet. You don't have feet for this hunting lifestyle. And the shrikes went, don't worry. We'll come up with yeah. something. <laughs> so, what, el- what else do the birds of prey have? Well, famously hooked beaks. Cool, we'll do cool. that. We can do that. Yes, but, <laughs> but you see what the birds do. Well, hunt, the birds of prey will use those talons to hold their prey down so they can use their beak to take pieces off of it. And, and without specialized feet, how are you even going? What are you going to do? And the shrikes are taking notes. Something sharp. Something to sharp. To hold prey. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, brings us to the thing that shrikes are absolutely famous for. Apparently, the name shrike comes from the noises they make. Yes. Yeah, the, the shrieking noise. They make, like... Uh, um, what's uh, they make repulsive shrieking noises, like <laughs> like unpleasant shrieking noises, <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, um, shrikes are called butcher birds, which apparently the 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 genus name is butcher. Yes, yeah. Lanius is the famous genus mm-hmm. of shrikes, and uh, it comes from the term for the term for butcher. Yes, because they impale stuff because they hang up meat like a butcher. Yes, hangs up sides of meat. <laughs> so shrikes are famous for grabbing prey. And then finding like sharp thorns or something and sticking their prey onto the thorn so that they either can hold it in place while they take pieces off of yeah, it. Yeah, now, now this anchors the prey since mm-hmm. they don't have those powerful feet to hold it. Or to keep it there for later. Yeah. That they'll just store it there. You wait here. I'll be back when I'm hungry. It's a pantry now. Yes. And that's such a awesome use of your environment. And I, I see stuff like that and often wonder where we draw the line on tool use. Right. It's like, all right, you're not wielding the thorn. No. But if a, if my wall hook where I hang up my towels is a tool, right. how is this not? A, like, that sure does seem like tool use. And that's such an intriguing way to use your environment. Yeah. Well, I was also really interested in sort of reviewing information about shrikes uh, to note that it that is a behavior that kind of shapes a whole bunch of different aspects of Shrike lifestyle. Yep, yep, yep. 
that it is they use it for storing their food and for eating their food. They also use it for courtship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like they will stock a larder with a bunch of stuff to impress potential mates. Look what a good provider I'd be. Yeah. Well, it's like the really disturbing version of a bowerbird. Yes. It's like, yes, look, I have made this incredible display just for you. It is made of the dead and impaled bodies of a bunch of cool stuff that I found. I sacrificed them for our love. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, it, well, and it also makes me think of how it shapes their their overall ecology. And like, if a butcher bird finds itself in a place without thorny plants, mm-hmm. it either has to find alternatives or they may not be able to live that like yeah that's a that that is a aspect of your environment that now you need as a prerequisite for at least certain hunting styles like maybe they would just adjust to smaller prey and i know that they i've read that they will just catch bugs out of the air like they can eat like bats and just grab bugs out of the air which makes total sense but it would mean that you would see a a stop to lizards being on the menu because you can no longer decapitate them yeah. yeah So, and, and we do see that in some places where they are using other stuff, famously barbed wire fences. Yep. Which, which is one of those examples where it's like, it's not your fault that you're using barbed wire. No. You didn't make the barbed wire. We did that and we put it out there. But man, if you're going to live up to your reputation as, (laughs) as a, a really intimidating brutal behavior <laughs> just one of the most metal birds <laughs> yes it's, uh, yeah well listen there's no thorns around this barbed wire <laughs> fence will do you gotta know that there's been in some instance of like an overzealous or dense population of shrikes that just like line a barbed wire fence <laughs> and someone drives by and is like some sicko lives there like <laughs> right? what kind of display is that <laughs> who's doing that that's that's disgusting <laughs> you're sick yep Listen, and they're like, listen, the females love it. Yeah, and and this, the person whose gonna... house that is like, it's the birds! It's the birds! <laughs> it's such a cool behavior, especially because I, I can think of other species that create caches of food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like squirrels are a famous example. They'll bury seeds and nuts and stuff. And even other species that create caches of prey. Yes. Like we've talked about. Shrews do this mm-hmm, very mm-hmm. famously and disturbingly, but they are venomous enough to paralyze prey and they'll stick it in their little den and then wait and come back for later. I don't I don't know of other animals that are doing something where you are hanging your prey on something. Yeah. To then come back later. Something that is very uniquely a bird capability to go, I'm going to create my larder way up here. Yeah. And no one else will get it, but in order to get them to stay there and to stay in one place so that I can eat off of them, I need to stick them onto a sharp thing. It's a very distinctive... It's found in a number of shrike species, but it's a very distinctive behavior that I don't know of other animals that do that. The closest thing I can think of, and it's not on the same scale of number of prey, potentially, but I think leopards will do that where they will Hmm. stash a prey item up in a tree. Put it up on a branch. And then come back for it later because most of the other big predators in Africa won't be able to get up there unless it's another leopard. Which only makes this tiny bird that, like, (laughs) the only other animal I can think of is a leopard. (laughs) (laughs) And leopards, I think, this is an episode about shrikes, but just for a second, leopards, I think, get a reputation for being less notable and less Mm -hmm. impressive 
because they live alongside lions yep. and cheetahs, which have are 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 superlatives. Yes. Leopards are awesome. They're I'd, such cool animals. I would like to see anyone else just grab a gazelle by the neck and then just go vertical with it. With your in your mouth. Yep, just Without breaking stride or speed, just up a tr- that's in- that is insanity. And shrikes have a very sort of similar impressiveness to them. Of a, yeah, I grabbed this lizard mm-hmm. and I flew it up to this thorn and I punctured it on this thorn uh, so that I could save it here for later and then eat off of it. When they they've always when I see pictures of a shrike, you know, feeding otter just next to its larder, I often have the disassociation of like, how did you do that? Yes, you are a tiny little bird. You're t- I, like I see the dead body. I'm not questioning you, but I can't <laughs> picture the scenario where you killed that, carried it back here, and then skewered it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's A is not matching B. You 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 are more <laughs> than what you appear. Yes, little bird. They're not tiny, tiny, but no. they are like sparrow size. Is that yeah? They're, they are. I've seen they were described as medium sized passerines. Yeah, they are by no means beefy birds. Yeah. So it is it is quite impressive what they're able to in, achieve, especially like we said, they're not catching their prey the way we would typically think. It's got to mm. basically all be that beak, which mm. is just a unique way for a predatory bird to hunt minus like herons, which right. then I'm like, well, yeah, of course you're using your beak. Absolutely. It's a sword. Look at it. <laughs> you have a lance on your face. <laughs> so it, it, they are very impressive, unique birds that at a glance do not look like either of those things. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know there is at least some fossil record of shrikes because I've seen it mentioned at least once, at least an example of fossil shrikes. <laughs> always fossil around many tiny bodies. Well, and I was going to say, I don't I don't know if there has ever been a fossil, but I could imagine the possibility of mm-hmm. a fossil. I, I imagine a fossil in amber. Yes. Of like a insect impaled on a thorn. Yep. I don't know that that's ever been found. It probably hasn't because I'm sure I would have seen it on the Wikipedia page. Yeah, that seems like that would be big, big uh, discussion. But you could. That absolutely could be... Uh, uh, preserved in the fossil record, uh, well, given the right circumstances. It also makes me wonder, and this is where my knowledge completely bottoms out, like, how closely are they tied to the plants they use? Is there uh, any coevolution between, like... Are there certain plants yeah. that, like, this plant has big enough thorns? Mm-hmm. Well, I know that shrikes tend to live in open environments. Yep. They tend not to be forest-dwelling birds. And the classic image in my head is, like, shrublands. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so it's possible that a forested environment wouldn't have the right kind of plants yeah so there's probably at least some relationship in that sense well and i also and like i don't know how long what how lengthy their fossil record is or how long we suspect they've been predatory Mm -hmm. uh but if they've been using plant thorns for this like is there any benefit to the plant like do the remains that fall down help fertilize the plant phosphorus and stuff yeah so would there be any symbiotic pressures for mm. you know plants to evolve longer thorns not for defense but to attract shrikes to yeah. to be an ideal habitat and hopefully gain that boost in fertilizers like i don't know i don't know what we see what happens to the plants that shrikes use well and also is there that now now it's a stretch this is a stretch would there if you had plants with bigger and bigger thorns would that permit Larger the, prey. The feeding of larger and larger mm-hmm. prey. 
and would that drive the body size of larger and larger shrikes? Yeah. And so, yeah. Just I have d- a jackrabbit up on a giant thorn sticking off of a thing. Usually it's bugs. Like, usually mm-hmm. they, it's it's insects or very small vertebrates. Yes. Which is still very impressive. Oh, yeah. I did see one thing noting that at least some shrikes, or maybe one species, will use it as a way to handle toxic caterpillars yes, or grasshopper, that. grasshopper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that they'll pin it up and then let it sit. Wait for a couple of days. And then the toxins will degrade just as chemicals and oft- as, as molecules often naturally do. Right. When they aren't being maintained so that then by the end of it, it's just a grasshopper. Yeah. Which yeah. is so cool. That's all. Aw- it, well, it's like uh, crocs storing their stuff to let it rot a little bit to make mm-hmm. it easy. Like that's a very similar strategy of I want to eat this, but it's not ready yet. Yes. It's not ripe. It's not ripe. We got to let it age. <laughs> Put it on the hook. And this goes back to what I was saying in the beginning that I'm Im- I was impressed in reviewing information that this feature of theirs isn't just for one thing. Yes. They have developed this cool behavior and they use it for a bunch of different purposes and a bunch of different stuff. It's a very defining f- behavior for the way they live. Yeah, it it is very much like we see in a lot of animals, you've developed an unusual behavior, use it for as much as you can, you know, or a very unusual feature, like an elephant trunk. It's like, yeah, yeah that that trunk is used for a hundred different, like, there's tons of different uses for that. And it's very cool to think of the various ways strikes have gone. Yeah, this is what I'm known for. Might as well make the most of it. Yeah, it is. I, that is, every now and then I, we come across groups like of modern animals that I am more curious than others to see where you'll go evolutionarily mm-hmm. and strikes definitely like will we see even more specialized predatory strikes yeah th- you know millions of years from now will they develop other adaptations to hunting like what what is this unique bird going where, to do where does this go yeah or is this is this a blip you know will they generalize you know and become more normal perching birds well, and it also is one, it's one of those modern behaviors that I look at and go, I can't think of any other animal that does this. Have there been extinct animals? Were there dinosaurs that did this? Yep. Like, were there little, like, Microraptor or Velociraptor-style dinosaurs that did this sort of behavior? Probably not, actually, because they had the claws to help yes. pin down their prey. But, like, w- what were there other animals? Mm-hmm. Could there have been other animals in the past? Or pterosaurs, Yep, right? yep. Could there have been pterosaurs that did this kind of behavior? I don't know why not. Yeah. And how cool would that be if this is one of those things? Have previous bird groups. Yeah. You know, has this come up multiple times among birds? And yeah, it's, it is. Yeah. Here, here's hoping for that amber specimen someday. Yeah. yeah. Of a little Cretaceous bug that's impaled on a thorn. Uh, where pterosaurs have been flying around. Absolutely. Yeah, this feels like a very all yesterday's kind of behavior of like yeah all right paleo artists (laughs) let's see it let's see butcher pterosaurs yep yep (laughs) man oscar this was a great suggestion uh for a mini episode we have had a wonderful time talking about butcher birds we hope that you have also had a wonderful time listening to us talk about shrikes uh hopefully perhaps we will get the chance to talk about them more on the main podcast at some point in the future in the meantime Thank you again for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you for being a devoted listener. And thank you for giving us this very cool group of birds 
uh, to geek out over for a little bit. Yeah, they are ever so interesting and slightly intimidating. Yes. <laughs> well, this is one of those animals. We always try to toe this line between allowing ourselves to be impressed and to feel emotions mm-hmm. about evoked by animals and, and wildlife behavior while also not being overly dramatic or oversensitive you know, without, without being invoking fear yeah, or, or judgment. Yes. And this is when we're like, this is super cool. It's super fascinating. You are impaling corpses on a stick and that's, that's hardcore. You were a hardcore bird. <laughs> we wrote a whole book and have made many movies about a human who is famous for doing that. <laughs> like, like when you start inning Dracula territory, yes. we, we can't help but <laughs> embellish a little bit on how you make us feel. Very cool, birds. Very cool. Oscar, thank you uh, very much for joining us. We're going to get out of here. Bye for now. Bye. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, Lucy, and welcome to your patron mini-episode. You already know this part, but you are a subscriber on our patron at a particularly high level, and you get the reward of a little mini-episode. Our thoughts about a topic of your choosing and what you have choosed is Intelladonts. Yeah. A very cool group of animals that we have actually, we've talked very little about on the podcast. Yeah, no. Uh, over time. come An interesting ratio to how famous they are as extinct animals to how much we've actually gotten to talk about them. Yeah. Uh, and since we haven't done an episode about them, this is mostly because, I guess, not a lot of research is being done. Yeah. Well, because oftentimes there are things that don't show up in the news very often, not because they aren't researched, but because that research doesn't make the news headlines. Yes. And we like to pick things that we can link a popular article to. But you, any research that's getting done on IntelliDance is liable to make a headline because you get to put the word hell pig yep. in the title. Uh, so, yeah, I wonder how active there is research on IntelliDance. Yeah, and I don't know how like widespread and robust their fossil record is. Mm-hmm. I uh, get the impression that, there's, that there are some good specimens mm-hmm. and well-known species. But, yeah, I don't know if there's... If they're known from very much remains. Yeah, like I, I when I glance at the wiki, they mentioned one, like when they're mentioning some of the biggest species, they mentioned one where it's only known from fragmentary mm-hmm. remains. So, yeah, I'm not sure what the what the current scenario and, and, and sort of field. The, the status yeah, of, the status. of Intelodon research. Yeah, but they are extremely famous because, again, they kind of have the, the thing that forest rackets have going on. Mm-hmm. Where you can talk about forest rackets and describe forest rackets, and that's all really cool. But then we called them terror birds, and now the level of recognition has gone up immensely. Well, their marketability. Now, yes, exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> Intelodonts are the hell pigs, or the Terminator pigs. Ooh. As I have seen used a number of times. Will they be back? Will the. Because. We, we have lots of questions. Famously, <laughs> they come back. Um, Usually, though, not as good as the earlier versions. That's true. Yeah, so don't yeah. get too excited. They may come back, but it's it's going to be a mess. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little <laughs> bit weird. Their first two runs were much better. <laughs> <laughs> Intelodons, funnily enough, probably not pigs. No. I, I learned that while glancing at it as well. <laughs> yeah, that they are. They. It sounds like they were thought to be 
so today we've got pigs, which are suids, and peccaries, which are teasuids, mm-hmm. which are sort of the pig group. Yes. Uh, and they are very similar. P- peccaries here in the New World, pigs there in the Old World. And entelodonts, it seems, were once perhaps thought to be part of that group, but now are considered more closely related to the lineage that includes cetaceans and hippos and stuff. Which uh, makes very much sense looking at their face, because they've got a very scary hippo face going. Well, the <laughs> intelodonts are famous for, A, being quite large. Mm-hmm. The largest intelodonts were like cow and horse size. Yes. Pretty big artiodactyls. Like, would be looking you in, in the eye line. Mm-hmm. They are famous for... Having very, all these projections for muscle attachment on the face, for having big, sharp teeth. Mm-hmm. Often very long jaws. Long, yeah, a long muzzle. Like, like you know, not actually crocodilian in shape, but very, like, it is unusually long when you think of just mammal jaws. Yeah. Mammals don't typically go for that really long, toothy jaw. They have kind of a crocked mouth on the front of them, which is impressive. And they're also famous for being a lot like pigs. Yes. There's a reason that they were linked with pigs for a while. Their dentition gets compared a bunch. Their teeth, just the general shape of their skull and jaws is very pig-like, which uh, is terrifying. Oh, yeah. A pig the size of a horse. Mm-mm. We mm. think of pigs often. We think of pigs as being cute, adorable little animals and yummy. They're cute and yummy, and they're they're adorable in like cartoons and stuff. Yeah, but even farm pigs are can be very intimidating creatures. And wild, like wild boars, and even peccaries. Yep these 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 are intelodonts uh, are thought to have been similarly omnivorous likely living similar lifestyles to modern pigs, but a boar the size of a horse. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a very unsettling. <laughs> I don't want, I wouldn't want to stand next to that animal. No, 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 no. Well, it's like, yeah, wild boars and peccaries today are notorious. Like people are, <laughs> they're very similar to like the crockwise commercials that you'll see in Australia mm-hmm. of local dissemination of knowledge being like, leave peccaries alone. Yes. They will send you to the hospital. You will get gored. They, They've got big tusks. They will, like, s- sever tendons and stuff, and you're, like, they are going to maul you because their their little sharp teeth are terrifying. Mm-hmm. So this is, even though they are probably not pigs, every other title that goes in front of that so far has been, like, yes. Hell well, Terminator whatevers. Well, yep. And when I was reading about them... I had the realization that like, you have a lot in common with pigs, but also you appear to be on the lineage that includes cetaceans and their close relatives. Yep. And you have a bunch in common with hippos. Uh-huh. Like a lot of that skull, a lot of the skull features are are reminiscent of hippos. They are large size. So th- they're not so much hell pigs as they are hippo pigs, yeah. which is an even scarier name. Well, yeah, and like... Of all the Venn diagrams, the one <laughs> right. that overlaps pigs and hippos, and in the middle you find intelodonts, like... Right. No, 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 That's no, no. You shouldn't have mixed those things. Those circles should have been far <laughs> apart. Please, please keep those separate for the good of the world. Yeah, they they are... Well, and, and they, like, there's tons of impressive fossils out there, but when you get to stand next to the skull of one of these animals, mm-hmm. it is just one, like, was this drawn up 
for a comic book because yeah. it is just intimidate is just just impressive and kind of scary well they also had just big heads Mm -hmm. for their body size they just they're just big headed animals again very much like hippos yep yep big old skulls filled with sharp teeth i think intelodonts are often when, when i hear them described they are often sort of popularly thought of as uh, predators mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that, that 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 name hell pig terminator pig sort of brings to mind this image i probably have seen them compared to t-rex yeah yeah because they have big <laughs> heads full of teeth and yeah. they're large animals um and it's it's an interesting scenario because on the one hand these are artiodactyls these are hoofed animals they are not predator these are not hunters no. these are not good uh, these were probably omnivorous they probably ate Similar things to modern day pigs and peccaries. But also, pigs and peccaries will eat anything. Yep. And if you're five or six feet tall at the shoulder, anything might very well include rather impressively sized small animals. Yep. Yep. Like, it's not so much that you were a predator, but if some small animal got in your way... You probably would eat it, not because you hunted it down, but because it got too close. It was there. Yeah. Well, I've heard the description of giant pandas. Yes. That uh, giant pandas are famously highly adapted for eating bamboo. But I've also heard it remarked that, yeah, if, if like a mouse or a small animal runs in front of a giant panda, they'll grab it. They'll grab it and eat it. And like, yeah, well, because you've got giant bear paws. Yes. And the, at least the front of your mouth is full of bear teeth. Mm-hmm. And, and bear-powered jaw. Like, yes. <laughs> you've still got a bite that's meant for crunching through bamboo shoots. You're still a bear. Yes. That, that is, there is still bear in there. And the idea of, yeah, like, this is an animal that's not specialized for hunting or necessarily eating or scavenging uh, uh, in the way we think of with predatory animals or, or dedicated scavengers. But it has the tool set, the tool set to do it. And also it's they're just so big Mm -hmm. and so well suited in terms of your big, sharp teeth and extremely powerful jaws that I wouldn't want to give it a chance. No, Mm -mm. this would be one of those animals like kept in captivity where you're like, yeah, it's not going to like come after you, but don't put your hand in front of its mouth. no. Don't get in reach of it. Well, I think part of the reason why it can often be so weird to, for, for many of us to categorize animals like this as to like, where do they fit is because we've been given such a false impression of so many herbivorous animals. Mm-hmm. It's like deer, plant eaters, harmless. It's like, okay, but except when they're eating carrion or baby birds right. or baby rabbits. Right. Like, and also, except when they have big old antlers and they're bashing yeah. them against each other and being violent. So we, we have this false impression of so many herbivorous animals that they are just one thing. And it's like even giraffes will eat bones mm-hmm. to get calcium. Like they're not killing animals typically, but they will absolutely. That's still scavenging. That is a dead animal. And that's part of the dead animal that they are consuming. Mm-hmm. So like. It is so much more common than most documentaries will tend to show that plant-eating animals or bivorous animals take in meat and protein and insects all the time. Yeah. Because that's the best source of protein. Like, plants are not as pound-for-pound nutritious as meat is because Mm -hmm. 
meat is concentrated plant. <laughs> it's like you're going to get more nutrition per pound that way. So if you come across a bit of it, most animals will take it. So an animal that has the teeth to really take advantage of it mm-hmm. is probably just doing that even more so. Like they probably were still like bears mm-hmm. more often. Brown bears and black bears are typically plant eaters. Yeah. They're eating grass even, but like berries and stuff like that. But they are good enough that they can actually take down some prey when the time comes or right. when it presents itself. And I think in that way, Intelodons are probably uh, very dissimilar from hippos in that hippos, despite all of their various scary hippo things, are not meat eaters. No. That they are very dedicated. I'm sure that they will occasionally oh, yeah. grab a thing. I'm sure if a body is on the side of the river, they will absolutely go nom on it. Sure. Because why Why not? But they're predominantly plant eaters comparing intelodonts to pigs. And I like your comparison that you just made to bears. Yes. It's like, yeah, this, this likely was living a lot like big bears do. And we, we and so that that's another example where it gets so confusing because are bears apex predators? Yeah. In their environment, they take down the largest prey. Right. Nothing really can mess with them except another bear. Mm-hmm. And they are highly adapted. Large claws, powerful jaws, sharp canines. Mm-hmm. Very good for taking down meat. But that's not what they're doing most of the time. On average, if you were just able to like magically have an image of a bear, it's mm-hmm. probably going to be eating plants. Yeah. They are apex predators when they are being predatory. Yes, exactly. When a bear decides to hunt, it now it is an apex predator. But most of the time, it's an I don't know if it's an apex herbivore. Yeah, isn't yeah really right, a, right. They're really a thing. Well, no, because if you overlap with mooses, that's the apex herbivore. Yeah, sorry, pal, you're not you're not the apex predator. So it is very. Yeah, it's it, intelligence were probably now whether or not they were hunting. Yes, uh, research has gone back and forth because again. Today, if we're comparing them to pigs, boars and wild pigs will absolutely scavenge. Mm-hmm. They eat a lot of carrion. That's that's pretty common for them to eat. Uh, they are dangerous enough in turn, and, and they are often territorial. Yes, so they can attack. So they could. They certainly have the capability to kill something and then mm-hmm. eat the carrion. But how much they actually are hunting things. And, like, if a little animal gets in their way, they might grab it up like so many uh, uh, artiodactyls will do. But boars aren't really, like, chasing after prey and taking it down and devouring it like we think of with predators. Yes. Intelodonts, if we're comparing them to pigs, more likely were doing that. They probably weren't chasing after prey and hunting it down. And I think that's the big difference to make is... Like, the terms can sometimes get a little confusing where you can be omnivorous and therefore at times a meat eater. But that does not inherently mean you are a predator. Right. Like, you might not, you're likely not stalking and pursuing or setting up ambushes. But if an intelligence eating on something or like scavenging a corpse Mm -hmm. and another scavenger gets in, uh, like tries to sneak in a little too close and the intelligence doesn't like that, turns and bites it. Mm-hmm. and kills it in that bite, well, it, hey, it more, probably more, would then just swallow. More carrion. <laughs> exactly. Like, those situations, because you see that happen all the time with animals, where it's like, yeah. rhinos don't hunt things, but they kill other animals rather regularly, not because they chased it down, but the other animal got too close to the rhino, the rhino 
turned on it quicker than that animal could get out of the way mm -hmm. and gored it. And if the rhino had the teeth to then eat it, right? that's kind of what I picture with animals like this. Or like a hippo. Like a hippo. Like, yeah, if a hippo gets mad at something and bites it, that's that's a bad day yep. for whatever that animal is. You very likely are not going to walk away. And if you are, probably not for too long. I've seen that documentary footage yep. of that lion. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Look that up at your own peril. Uh, well, it's... it's <laughs> It's just, rough. Yeah, it's rough. That's rough. It's footage. I can't remember the the name of that one. It's it's named after the the river, if I remember right. And it's like a year at that river, and it's it's a they don't censor a lot with that yeah. one. <laughs> but like, I definitely picture animals like this very because like deer, they don't hunt baby birds. But mm -hmm. if they're going along and they go <gasps> ground dwelling bird, pa -pow. I'm gonna go snag one of those babies and get me some calcium. Yeah. That's yeah. They're not stalking the the prairies for birds. It's just if they come across it, they are going to take advantage of it. Well, and I think that intelodonts also are evocative of this really intriguing trend that we we sort of we have intelodonts and we think of we have all these hoofed animals that we're familiar with, artiodactyls, and intelodonts have this reputation for their weird skulls and big yep. teeth and all that. But they are a piece of this very broad trend of artiodactyls specifically being extremely surprisingly intimidating animals. Yes, absolutely. Like pigs can be quite dangerous. They can be uh, uh, quite violent with each other. Hippos are famously like that. Camels <laughs> are very like, I'm trying to find the right word here so that we're not like over, you know, I want to call them vicious. Yeah, they're just yes. not vicious. But they can be very dangerous well, animals. I, I feel like intimidating is a good word because mm -hmm. it's it's not saying that they are evil. It's not saying even that you should be scared of them. But like, or imposing maybe is the a, a yeah, better maybe. word. Because like well, it, it's a about... moose is imposing, yeah. end of sentence. That's part of why it <laughs> evolved that way. It well, evolved big. It evolved powerful so that predators wouldn't mess with it. Yeah, imposing and intimidating are nice because they are about our reaction, mm -hmm. not about anything the animal's doing. It's like, these are animals that you should be careful around mm -hmm. because this is an animal that has some oomph behind yeah. it. <laughs> Moose is another good example. Bison is another. Like, yeah. There's this interesting trend. We talked about giraffes uh, in the giraffes episode. There's this interesting trend among artiodactyls, among our even-toed hooved animals, where they are predominantly herbivorous yep. and they tend to, you know, they often live in herds and they're often out grazing and they're doing all the herbivore things. But they also have this repeating trend of being extremely imposing, dangerous animals. Well, <laughs> and intelodonts are, they have this reputation, but they're really just one point yep. in this great spectrum of really intimidating artiodactyls. And I wonder how much of that is just that so much of the world is so used to cows. And it's so mm -hmm. easy to go, like, ah, it's just another kind of cow, right? It's like, well, no, we domesticated these. Right. These are benign because we domesticated them. And these still kill more people than sharks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like... Even the ones we've designed to live with us. And I'm sure that there is, uh, uh, th there may very well be a uh, northern slash western bias to this. Mm -hmm. It's like here in North America, our common artiodactyls are like deer. Yep. And we've got cows. And in Europe, it's a similar scenario. 
it's very likely that if we asked people from Africa, mm-hmm. you know, they'd be like, no, artiodactyls are also. Yes. Yeah. Our already, we've got camels and we've got water wild buffalo. pigs and we've got water buffalo and things like that. Yep, yep, yep. The other thing that always pops in my mind when it comes to intelligence is their, their knobbly head, which mm-hmm. has often been one of those examples pointed to in the fossil record as to how we represent fossil groups in, in paleo art, because much debate over why it is so ornate in it, in its structure has been a common thing among researchers and how do you, how, what, how do we cover that with right. soft where, tissue? Where does all the muscle go? Yeah. And it's often been in many artistic interpretations, kind of what term you'll see go around shrink wrapped, where those bony projections are very clearly visible through the shape of the skin. Right. The, the head fleshed out is still knobbly. Yes. While others have pointed to the hippo very often mm-hmm. to say it also has a very knobbly skull but is not knobbly because it is soft on the outside. Right. And I've seen many now more recent art of Intelodonts where they have just kind of a more fleshed out, you know, quote unquote, normal looking head, less extreme looking head. And just that, yeah, probably there was soft tissue filling in a lot of that space. Would Intelodonts have been sort of hippo-like in that sense that it was an animal that was like, shaped roughly like a water, water buffalo <laughs> or a whore, you know, somewhere in that mm-hmm. horse water buffalo uh, thing. And it looks perfectly benign if large. And then like a hippo, it opens its mouth and you go, oh, okay, we're just going to go the other direction then. Yeah. Or, which is the other example people have used and why things kind of leaned the way they did the first time. Is it more like a warthog? Right. Where your skin is shrink-wrapped to your very knobbly face. Yeah, and you do have all these bony projections on your face. you look as intimidating as you are yes. on the outside. Like, we don't know. And this this animal falls in that very interesting fossil category of... Mm-hmm. You, you are similar enough to a, enough different animals that it really is difficult to know which one is a more reasonable comparison to how to represent you. Yeah. This strikes me as one of those fossil groups that a ton of discussion has been dedicated to these, but there's tons more for us to learn about them. Absolutely. There's a lot more research to be done. I'm sure there is much demand among researchers for more intelligent fossils uh, for a better understanding of this group. Because this is a whole group of animals. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just Intelodon. These were around for many millions of years. There's a bunch of different genera. So I'm sure that this is one of those groups that will... It makes me think, probably because we've talked about it on a bunch of episodes in the not-too-distant past, it makes me think of, like, Dunkleosteus. Yep. This is a famous animal. It is famous for its really scary-looking head that there, there's actually a whole lot we don't know about this mm-hmm. group and its evolutionary lineage. But any time we get the chance to research and talk about them, we're gonna because yes. it's super cool and interesting. Because we're all curious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also wonder how many people uh, was walking with prehistoric beasts. Your introduction. Oh yeah. That that was where I learned about this animal, mm-hmm. these animals, because that was the first time I saw one, and it it very much portrayed them as like. And then the Intelodon shows up. Yes. Like, like just terrorizes everything else. Yep. (laughs) Which, some artiodactyls are like that. Hippos do that all the time. When it, It may have been when the Intelodon comes along, 
everyone gets out of the way. Just quietly leaves the watering hole. This isn't a, <laughs> this, it doesn't have to be a predator to just be a real mean animal who's going to mess with anybody that looks at it sideways. Once again, like rhinos. Rhinos, yep. You are not predatory, but everyone knows to stay out of your way. It doesn't take much to set off a rhino. Mm Mm-hmm. So just (laughs) give them a wide berth. Let them do what they're going to do. The watering hole will be there afterward. (laughs) Also a group of animals with very large heads. Yes. uh, And pointy bits. Yep, yep, yep. Lucy... Thank you so much for suggesting Intellidons. Uh, for sure, I, I imagine we will do discussions about Intellidons in the main series of the podcast at some point in the future. Until then, this was a lovely little appetizer. Until then. Until, until, until then. <laughs> this has been a lovely little appetizer uh, for us to tide us over until then. Uh, and hopefully to tide you over. Uh, with your Intellidont curiosity, uh, we have a ton of fun doing these mini episodes yeah. uh, that give us the chance to just kind of go off about a particular group of animals. Speaking of just going off, on, when I was glancing there, Wikipedia, it was talking about, I don't remember the name, it started with a D. Is Deodon. Deodon, thank you, mm-hmm. is one of the largest ones that's like six to like, I think it said 7.9 is the upper estimate for Whoa. their like shoulder height. I saw six. Yes, that's the one most common <laughs> I saw, but like when they listed that species, it was like, that was the range. But either way, it had a picture with like the skeleton next to the person. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like, back the top of its back was at the top of the person's head yep and i had an immediate moment of like that that's a D mount oh dire pig that's i would that's a dire boar that's, that's oh, basically right? a dire boar yeah i would so and it would be so great mm. to like lean into like this is a terrifying animal but then it's it's if it's behaviorally still very much like a pig like when we settle down, I just feed it stuff. Yeah. And it just, just like... give it whatever. Is actually fairly friendly and intelligent. I was going to say, <laughs> do you think... Because pigs are also notoriously clever. They are. I don't know if peccaries are, are clever. I don't know, actually. Don't, and and it is worth noting that the pigs that I often hear about being clever are domesticated yes. pigs. Yes. And I don't... I don't know if wild pigs are noted for being as clever. I don't know if there's any historical evidence of peccaries being domesticated. Like I don't not that I know of. Yeah, I don't I don't know of any today, and I don't know if we have any evidence of like populations in South America yeah. having started to or attempted to or anything. Yeah. Now, if I'm going to go wildly speculative uh, and completely unscientific, intelligents are on the cetacean line. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm trying to find excuses for any time you can turn an animal into a whale. <laughs> David will take it. <laughs> and intelligent intelligents, intelligence. <laughs> I also just had the image of comparing to the animals of all those uh, zoo videos that you find of them like giving watermelons to hippos and then mm-hmm. just, cr- man, just <laughs> tossing. Just gallagering the yeah. watermelons. Here's a <laughs> here's a, a, a whole melon for you, buddy. Uh, and then he just crushes crunch, it. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Ah, I know what my next character's writing. Oh, that would be very cool. <laughs> Lucy, thank you for your support. Thank you for your listenership. Thank you uh, for being a dedicated fan uh, to the podcast. And thank you for suggesting Intellidance uh, for this mini episode. We've had a great time recording it. We hope that you have had a nice time listening to it. And with that, uh, we are off to do the, the back to your regularly scheduled podcast programming. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, Tobias. Welcome to your 
patron mini-episode for subscribing to us and supporting us. You requested marine iguanas, or iguanas in general, mm-hmm. and we would love to discuss that. Squamates! Yeah! Oh, I'm always happy to talk about <laughs> squamates. Uh, and iguanas are a cool group of lizards. Mm-hmm. I, the thing that always gets me about iguanas... So, I guess, taxonomically... There is a genus iguana. Yes. Which includes the green iguana and then iguanas from the Antilles. There are a bunch of things called iguanas in the family Iguanidae. Yes. Which includes also like spiny-tailed iguanas and things like that. And then there is a major group of lizards called Iguania, mm-hmm. which also includes anoles and chameleons and stuff. So the word iguana actually kind of gets thrown around quite a bit. Yeah. Well, I feel like it, it's... And I don't know the etymological origins of the word iguana. I think I used to know where it came from. I think maybe it means lizard. That's, I think that's it's a, something like that, I and think. That's what I kind of thought because that very much feels like what the term is, is that it's Right. Lizard, lizard, yeah. lizard, lizard. If I mm. if I had to choose a name of a group of lizards in place, like if I was if I was having to translate for aliens that are like, you can't use lizard because that just doesn't work in their language. Mm-hmm. What use another name for lizards to? Re- I'd go okay, iguanas. Iguana, sure. This this type of animal's iguana now, <laughs> because that's such that's such an encapsulating term. I think a thing that really I, I always stands out for me about iguanas is that so many lizards are lizard. Mm-hmm. Like you look at it and you go, that's a lizard. Even me, I am rather familiar with lizards. So there's t- there are thousands of species of lizards, and so many of them. If you pointed them out, I would go, "Yeah, that's a lizard." lizard. I don't know what kind of lizard that is, but it's a it, it's got the shape of it's the shape and size of a lizard. Iguanas are very distinctive looking, mm-hmm. especially like green iguanas, the famous uh, iguana species. That's a very distinctive body shape. Yes. They have that kind of saggy skin thing going on. They have that slight... I like. I always picture an iguana with that slightly sloped posture. Yep. With holding its head up a little bit high with the sloped back. Mm-hmm. Iguanas are often very ornamented. Yeah. They've got all sorts of spines. Some iguanas change colors. Yeah. I yep. remember learning many years ago that green iguanas uh, will actually... Uh, if I remember correctly, maybe this is wrong, but I remember learning that green iguanas will change color based on their social dynamic. Oh, yes, like I have The heard highest that. ranking iguanas, well, I think it was that they will have darker skin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it changes as the dynamics shift. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. It's very, well, and, and they also are just, like, I feel like if you ask someone to draw an iguana, a lot of people could get a bunch of their key features. Yeah, it's it's a very distinctive shape. Yeah, they've got those, uh, the, especially for the green iguana, those large spines on the back, those long, mm-hmm. you know, very uh, 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 exaggerated dorsal spines. They've also got like the the dewlap, you know, the the, the jowls. The jo- but then yeah, <laughs> yeah, they've got those jowls and that that distinctive bulb at the back of their jaw, that yeah. that very circular scale that's there, and then like short faces, mm-hmm. like. They yeah, they are a unique group of lizards. I think I think that it's useful to specify how interesting and unique iguanas are. They're also most they tend to be arboreal, mm-hmm. which is a cool thing for lizards to do. Not an unusual thing. No. 
Um, although it always does stand out to me with the green iguanas because green iguanas are also big. Yeah, it, it kind of makes you like big lizard, the orangutan of lizards. Like, what are you doing up in trees? Yeah, well, it's like the uh, arboreal monitors, mm-hmm. which we talked about in the monitors episode. It was like, yeah, some of those are real big yeah. monitors. <laughs> that is, you are a little too big to be up in that tree. Absolutely, because you'll see some tree monitors, and it's like, yeah, you're like you know a foot and a half long, yeah. perfect tree size. Yeah, and then you see another one, it's like that. No, because no. then you can fall on me, and I don't want that would you hurt. falling. On yes. <laughs> So I think that it's it's nice to point out the ways that iguanas are kind of interesting and distinctive if we are then going to talk about the one type of iguana yeah. that is utterly bizarre. Yes. <laughs> Marine iguanas are their whole own thing. They are very iguana-like. They have that iguana. Yeah. They look a lot like a green iguana. They're not. They're not genus iguana. Uh, they look like a... That iguana shape. They've got the the big claws, the shorter face, the big spines on their back. Yep. And then they've just gone and done a weird thing. Yeah. It's they they have always stood out to me for especially when I was a little kid, of like I learned about marine iguanas and I, I immediately had the feeling of just man, yeah, why this is everything about them is awesome. Like mm-hmm. they're they're like dark colored and like coal black a lot of them they've got these big spines they've got this short face but then it's like knobbly and horned on the top yeah and then this long tail and these big clawed arms and they swim around and like this is the best lizard like very cool lizard (laughs) in my little kid brain there were not many other lizards that could top the number of cool things this lizard had and i think for me I've known about marine iguanas so... Because they're very famous. Yeah, They show up in documentaries and stuff. I've known about marine iguanas so long that it took me a while to register how unusual they are. Yep. Because I was like, yeah, marine iguanas. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows about marine iguanas, for sure. That's obviously. And eventually I reached an age where I went, oh, that's really weird. What are you doing? And then also having... Yeah, getting into a, a a stage in my life where I was being analytical about how we perceive different groups of animals and how we talk about them and having the thought of like, I mean, we call them marine iguanas, but like, is that how exaggerated, you know, how much are we exaggerating? And then learning more about them and going, oh, no, no, you are a marine. Yep. You, you are a marine lizard actually specialized for foraging and swimming around in the ocean. Yeah. They're such a, they are, as far as our modern understanding goes, the only living species, I think there may be multiple species, the only living group of marine adapted lizards. Yep. They are the closest thing we have to mosasaurs. Yep. Like, we've got (laughs) lots of swimming lizards. There's plenty of water specialized lizards, but those are all freshwater. Yes. Very much like snakes. Mm-hmm. There's tons of freshwater snakes. And then there's a handful of actual marine snakes. Yes. And it, I like, uh, I I said that and then I immediately remembered a video I saw of Komodo dragons hunting a goat at the beach and like swimming around <laughs> in the seawater at the beach. And like, I know they've been known to island hop and like sure, swim, sure, yeah. but they aren't specialized for like, they're no. good at swimming, and they're big enough that they can swim through some salt water and not right. not get salt poisoning. Like big crocodilians. Yeah. Or, or like crocodilians in general. Like, yeah, you may not be adapted for going across the ocean, but if you wind up out there for a little while, yes. you'll be okay. Like, an alligator can swim at the beach even though they don't have salt glands. Right. 
But like these these Mar- lizards, marine iguanas. That that this is you dive like a hundred feet deep. Mm-hmm. You hold your breath for like an hour. You are specialized for eating and digesting algae. Yeah. That's a, and thank goodness you live where all those super warm lava rocks are. Yeah. As you dive in the cold ocean water and then you have to come back up and recharge. Yeah. Well, and it, it also is uh, neat because like that explains why you're such dark colored because you need to heat up real quick because that water's very cold. Yes. And you need, you need to not just go <laughs> into a coma. Also, a thing that I did not fully appreciate until I was uh, refreshing my memory of knowledge about marine iguanas they are called marine iguanas not only because, of course, they are marine iguanas in the Galapagos, but because the other closely related group of iguanas to them in the Galapagos are the land iguanas. Yeah. Which is such a weird thing to have to specify. Yes. To go, yes, these are the iguanas that live on land. You're like, well, yeah, <laughs> they all do. Aha, uh-huh. not in the Galapagos. <laughs> yeah. And I was glancing at the Wikipedia and it seems like the current uh, hypothesis or, or, or theory with them is that those two split from a common ancestor mm-hmm. upon arriving on either the Galapagos Islands or some other nearby islands. Yeah. And which is almost weirder to me that it's like, so you got there and then split and have s- none of the land iguanas wanted to swim. Right. None of, none of you. One group One... went, listen, we've got a crazy idea Yeah, and we're going to do it. And I, I said earlier, I think there are multiple species. I know there are multiple subspecies. Yes, yes, for sure. Because they, across the, like so many things in the Galapagos, different subspecies are found on different islands. Yeah, yeah. Also, I looked at the Wikipedia page and learned that apparently there are certain cases where marine iguanas and land iguanas will still interbreed. Yeah, there was a picture of a hybrid. And create hybrid iguanas. Cool. Yep, yep. An amphibious iguana is perfectly adapted for both. This is That's... this is how you get the Arthur Curry <laughs> of iguanas. <laughs> yes. That's right. This is the iguana that, that come that defends the oceans yes. of the Galapagos. Aqua iguana. Aqua iguana. Iguaquaman. <laughs> <laughs> Iguaquaman. Oh, there you go. All right. Comic book writers. Yes. Uh, royalties go to the address <laughs> in the episode description. <laughs> One of the other things that that is significant to me about marine iguanas is you mentioned they eat algae, which is not super common among secondarily aquatic groups. No. Like, you've got manatees and their cousins, and I'm struggling to think of anything else. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe there are turtles? Yeah, like turtles. There are green green sea turtles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's... The only sea turtle, like the other sea turtles aren't algae eaters. The green sea turtle is an yeah. plant eater. The rest are predators. Mm. So like that's a very, very unusual thing for a secondarily aquatic thing. And it's neat because it's like this. You didn't do this weirdly. You stayed an herbivore because yes. most iguanas are, are you, herbivorous. You moved into the ocean and went, oh, what's there to eat around yeah. here? Where's the salad? Where's the green stuff? Yeah. And I think that's kind of neat because like. A lot of times when we talk about weird members of a group, very often it's a, a, a shift in diet is part of that yep. weirdness and that like, all right, they're weird because they eat more meat or they are the herbivorous member of this group or what, like you kind of just kept being an iguana, but now underwater. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's also that weird thing because eating algae is a strange thing to do because you're a relatively large vertebrate animal. Yeah. 
that that's good. Are you on your way to being a whale? Yeah, right. And you're like, listen, we're gonna we're gonna specialize in the super tiny stuff and just stay that way. Yep, yep. That's kind of a weird thing for a big. And again, these aren't huge, but like iguanas are good sized lizards. Oh yeah, no. Like if you were if we placed a marine iguana in your arms, your arms would get tired. Yes, holding like that is. I held a, a green iguana. Mm-hmm. Like, they're they're big. That's they get like six reptile. feet long with mm-hmm. that tail. The other thing that really stood out to me, I was, again, looking up, just reminding myself, looking up marine iguanas, and I don't know if this is a thing that I have observed about them before, or if it just hit me today, and I thought it was particularly relevant to this discussion, it particularly, it just, the shape of the body, the spines on the back, and especially the shape of the head, because iguanas tend to have a short face, Muzzle. Uh, and marine iguanas have a very short face, they've got that sort of knobbly thing. Marine iguanas look a lot like Godzilla. Yep, they do. They are very Godzilla-esque. Yep, that was one of the things I was going to bring up. (laughs) Yeah, the face looks a lot like Godzilla. They swim in the ocean. Yep. They've got that lizardy body. These are, they're very Godzilla-like. They're dark in color. Yeah. (laughs) My little kid headcanon for, because I was a big fan of the 98 Godzilla, Mm -hmm. with Zilla that everyone hates. Matthew Broderick. Uh, But I loved it, and I still love it. Even it, I will absolutely own up to it being... D- despite its flaws. Despite its flaws, <laughs> I can't help the nostalgia I feel for it. But they don't ever establish, like, what specific lizard Godzilla mm. mutated from. But they right, do right. show that the testing happened near a nest of lizard eggs. And they show, I think, a land iguana uh, go by it. But in my head, I was like, well... You showed that iguana, but obviously it has to be a marine iguana, right? It must be. It must be. And so in my little kid, and I would say that to friends all the time of like, actually, the new Godzilla was mutated from marine iguana. And then I'd go off on a tirade about marine iguanas. Here's my, I actually brought this soapbox along with me. I just presented that to my friends as fact. (laughs) And none of them cared about the movie enough or had seen it as many times or knew as much about lizards to contradict me. So I just went around proclaiming (laughs) that that Godzilla was a marine iguana. And it's, I still make that connection in my head to this day of like, I mean, it is the Godzilla lizard. So, well, well, and, and if it, if it isn't the lizard that inspired depictions of Godzilla, then wow. Yeah. Right. What a, what a convergence. That is a major coincidence. (laughs) Yeah. They are so, so cool looking and just, just, I find them very just pleasing to see. Mm-hmm. Just they're very unique. They're doing a cool thing. They look interesting. You see them sitting on rocks next to surf splashing up on the shore. Like yeah, which is such a weird thing to see a lizard doing. It's and there'll be big groups of them. So it'll be this you know this twenty lizards holding on to these volcanic rocks next to the surf, and that's such an awesome image. Yeah. And we mentioned their short face, like iguanas in general have short faces, but their face is like flat because yep. they're pulling algae off of rocks. So it's not like, yes, it's not like wispy seagrass. That's it's like they're like, like you're scraping, scraping it off, scraping it off with your teeth. So you have to get your face right up against the rock <laughs> and you have this flat bulldog face. <laughs> this is a thing that you, we, we've mentioned this in previous discussions uh, where you brought up the idea of evolutionarily speaking, it's intriguing to look at some groups of animals and think, where does this go? Yes. Like, where does evolution take? Like, if you get the chance to survive well into the future, where do the selective pressures take this further? 
Uh, and I wonder if are there adaptations for eating algae? Yeah, absolutely. That you will you develop like flexible lips mm-hmm. given enough time, like a manatee, and you can actually scrape the algae off of the rocks and things like that. Will you start getting better at eating? You know, further out where you can find like kelps and like mm-hmm. sea grasses and stuff like so that you are taking on larger amounts of yeah. marine plants and, and marine greenery would you get bigger mm-hmm. uh both to facilitate holding your breath longer longer you know just swimming more efficiently going farther out to sea and also because you can now access better quality food. Yes, exactly. Will you follow that age-old trajectory of marine things in just getting larger? I am completely on board for mosasaurs to return. I will take herbivorous mosasaurs. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. How interesting would it be if in the future we have marine lizards again? The the manatees of mosasaurs. But they're manatees. (laughs) Well, especially since over here... In another context entirely, we've got sea snakes fully ready to evolve into sea serpent. Right? That we'll have both. Yes. We yep. can have both. Well, and like, would you follow the same sort of body adaptations that we tend to see with like turning your fins your your limbs into flippers? Mm-hmm. Or because one of the things that they do that is very interesting for once again for a secondarily aquatic thing is they cling to the rocks under the water. Yeah. With their very characteristic iguana claws Mm -hmm. instead of clinging to branches they're anchoring to the rock underwater so that they can sit there and scrape the algae off the rock so like would you maintain that right or would you get better enough at swimming that you can push yourself down yes instead of having to hold yourself or if would you start being able to control your buoyancy better will we start seeing you having gastroliths you know Mm -hmm. that you swallow to be more neutrally buoyant in the water it'd be very interesting if we could fast forward and if they survive into the future, because they are also on the Galapagos. Yeah. Which <laughs> no, no species in the Galapagos is happy. They're none, none are safe. No, they're not. So like, but if they did, if we were able to fast forward and see, I'd be so fascinated to see if you do become fully marine mm-hmm. lizards again, would you look similar to Mosasaurs? Or would you take go your own direction? Was that a good shape for a predatory marine lizard, mm-hmm. but not marine lizards in general? But a manatee shape, yeah, is your. Well, I imagine that uh, they will keep their regular limbs for motion on land, and then they'll just get really, really big, mm-hmm. and their spines will develop into these big plates, <laughs> and the tail will just be super, super long, and then they will breathe radioactive. <laughs> beams of breath <laughs> well they eventually learned to harness all the latent photosynthesis <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> all the sun energy that has been all absorbed the, all that solar energy <laughs> and then they release a beam of light we are all made of star stuff and i've learned to harness it <laughs> <laughs> and, and with it i will unmake you <laughs> tobias thank you very much for this suggestion what a cool group of lizards They're so uh, fascinating very cool group of animals uh thank you as always, for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you for being a devoted listener to the podcast. And thank you for giving us the excuse to geek out about marine iguanas for a little bit. Yeah, it was a fun one. This these is, are so good. There's so much to talk about there. I, mm-hmm. These these mini episodes are so much fun. They're great. Sometimes there'll even be a thing where it's like, oh, 
what I don't know what direction this is going to mm-hmm. go. I don't know what we're going to I don't have a there's no structure here. We just get to go. And there's so much fun. Yeah. When we get to talk about super cool creatures. Well, it it feels like a very pure condensed version of of what we've said before about our our mentality with the topics for the mm-hmm. every topic could be made into its own documentary series if you ask someone who's interested enough. Yes. This feels like a very condensed, pure version of that. Of just Here's all the things that are interesting about this really quick. There's, yep. oh, there's so much. And the thing that always stands out for me about these mini episodes is that oftentimes we only kind of know what we're talking about. Yep, yep. Like, we didn't do a ton of background read. This is sort of like our existing knowledge. Firing from the hip. Our general perspective on evolution and natural history and some quick information we looked up online coming together to make this discussion. Imagine if we actually were experts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like when I'm, the main episode comes along about marine iguanas or something and we've actually done the deep dive. Oh, boy. So like, much to do. I know. Like they have the, the salt sneezes they'll do to get rid of the extra salt mm-hmm. from that's from, the precursor to the radiation. Yep. 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 <laughs> and like. That's the one thing I know about their salt adaptation. I'm sure there's like weird stuff going on with their livers or something like probably there's a whole, probably a whole bunch of weird things that if we actually read a paper, it's like, oh, boy, yeah. literally only scratching the surface. Let's talk about their kidneys. <laughs> yes. Perhaps someday we will get to read a bunch of papers about marine iguanas. All right. Let's cut ourselves off there. Thanks again, Tobias. Uh, we hope you continue to enjoy the podcast. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.